0: Hello and welcome to the Rachman Review. I'm Gideon Rachman, Chief Foreign Affairs Commentator of the Financial Times. In this edition, we're looking at climate change and the possibility of climate repair. This week, the UN Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, the IPCC, issued an unequivocal message. Climate change is accelerating and immediate action is needed if we're to slow it in its tracks. The past five years are the hottest since 1850, when records began. Even in the best-case scenarios of deep cuts in greenhouse gas emissions, temperatures will continue to rise until at least 2050. My guest this week is Professor Sir David King, who's head of the Centre for Climate Repair at Cambridge University. He's also served as the UK's special envoy on climate change and is a former chief scientific advisor to the British government. So David's a passionate believer in the need to cut greenhouse gas emissions. But he's also looking at whether some of the damage that's already been done could be reversed. Is climate repair a real possibility? The evidence of dangerous climate change seems to be all around us. This month has seen catastrophic fires in Greece. The agricultural wealth of the village has
1: been decimated. Nothing is left. Olive trees, sheep, goats, stables, everything.
0: Earlier in the year, we saw record temperatures in Western Canada. Vancouver, a city I know well, is normally a byword for rainy, mild weather. But this summer, it's been baking in temperatures of near 40 degrees Celsius. There have also been deadly floods in Germany and China. Climate scientists have usually been very cautious about attributing individual weather events to climate change, but that caution seems to be altering. The IPCC report makes it clear that we are indeed already seeing the effects of climate change all around us. Sir so David King believes that the reality is that climate is now changing even faster and more dangerously than many experts had previously foreseen. When I got him on the line from Cambridge, I asked him why he'd come to that
1: conclusion. Well, I think the very simple reason is because we are passing a major tipping point as we speak. This this summer and over the last three years, uh, up around the North Pole, we have been losing ice far more quickly than was anticipated, and I'm talking about the last 20 years, really. And the net result is that during the polar summer, and we're just coming to the end of the polar summer now, Arctic Sea is exposed to sunlight for the first time in many hundreds of thousands of years. And the result of this is that the region around the North Pole, during the three months of the polar summer, is one of the warmest regions in the Northern Hemisphere. So we have a colleague on the Climate Crisis Advisory Group, uh, uh, Terra Mustanen, who's a professor who lives uh, amongst the Sami people, who are the people who live on the permafrost right up in the north of Finland, nearest part to the North Pole. And I spoke to him two months ago and he said the temperature there was minus 30 degrees centigrade, which was normal. And then I spoke to him three weeks ago, the temperature was plus 31, a 60 degree centigrade temperature rise, unheard of. And of course, this is not only disastrous for that region, but Greenland sits in the Arctic Sea. And of course, that is now exposed to the extreme hot weather in that region. And when all of the ice on Greenland melts, we will see a global sea level rise of seven and a half metres. And the unfortunate thing is that as that begins to happen, it may well be irreversible without extreme interventions, by which I mean all of the ice will go once it begins to go more and more rapidly because of this very warm area around the Arctic Sea. And so sea levels now are rising, let's just take the period uh, over the last 10 years, sea levels are rising twice as fast as they were in the previous period. So what what we see is that now sea level rise is not only due to the warming of the seawater, it's also heavily due to the melting of ice based on land entering the ocean. So roughly 24% of sea level rise now is attributable to ice that has melted from land and entered the ocean. So we're on route for what looks like hundreds if not thousands of years of future disaster because the map of the world will change dramatically as sea levels just rise to half a meter, one meter. I just take you to Southeast Asia where countries like Vietnam will be inundated with seawater in a fairly short period of time. So Vietnam... When you say short period of time, what what are we talking about? In 30 years' time, I think something like 80 to 90% of the land mass of Vietnam will be underwater, seawater at least once a year. So we're talking about a population of 100-plus million people looking for somewhere else to live. But also, Vietnam is the third biggest rice producer in the world. But of course, it won't even be producing any rice at all once it's been inundated with seawater just once. Now, I'm I'm just talking about Vietnam, but we all know about Bangladesh. More than two-thirds of Bangladesh will be certainly unlivable in 30 years' time without major interventions. Jakarta, if we look at uh, Indonesia, their great capital, which is a vibrant modern mm. city which has been developed out of the tiger economy of indonesia will no longer be livable in a very short period of time because of frequent flooding in january february this year jakarta was underwater so we we're seeing a series of crises i'm just focusing on that part of the world mm. will create a vast number of climate refugees now i mean
0: Unfortunately, from what I know from following politics in the West, I find it all too plausible that people sitting, you know, where we're sitting in the UK or in in the US, will say, well, that's really dreadful, but, you know, maybe we'll be able to go on as we are. I mean, the rise of the ocean, presumably, however, will also flood cities in the West.
1: So, Gideon, let me respond by referring to the IPCC report which says there is not one region of the world that will not be impacted by climate change. Now, this is direct impacts they're talking about. I want to refer to indirect impacts. If we've got 300, 400 million climate refugees in just 30 years' time, what does that do to the global economy? What does the lack of rice production in that whole area Do not only to the economy of Southeast Asia, China, and India, and the ability to feed their people, but what does it do to the rest of the world? We have global markets. And I frankly don't see how the global economy can function in the face of a crisis of this kind. What about the climate
0: events happening right now. You know, this has been a summer of extraordinary weather events, the floods in Germany, in China, the fires currently raging in Greece, extraordinary temperatures, even in, in Canada, is a very temperate place. Normally, one is people are cautious, they say, well, this is the kind of thing we would expect in climate change, but we can't really attribute any particular event to climate change. But do you think we can now be a bit less cautious and say that we are now clearly seeing climate change in action?
1: This series of events that have occurred this summer are very clearly related to what I was saying about the Arctic Circle region. What happens in the Arctic Circle region doesn't stay there. So we are seeing the wind that blows around the North Pole, uh, quite a distance from the North Pole. But now there's warm air coming from the North Pole. And the result is that there's a massive distortion in this wind called the jet stream. And this distortion is what is causing these extreme events, particularly, I think this has been demonstrated in North America. You know, in Texas this year, the whole of the state was under snow the temperature of minus 16 degrees centigrade was recorded never before. However, three years ago, it was minus 13. Now, why is this happening? Because the cold air is being pushed away from the North Pole region and distorting the jet stream so that the cold air gets all the way down to Texas. But what that means is warm air is coming up into northern Europe, And so what we're experiencing now in Greece and Turkey is this warm air creating quite a heat dome, which means it's not shifting. But we're also getting extreme rainfall in Germany, and London has experienced some of that. But these extreme weather events, all occurring concurrently, are occurring during the polar summer, right? So that really is the causal relationship to many of these extreme weather events. Okay, so
0: we're now, you know, everyone's beginning to focus on what can be done. A lot of what politicians are talking about ahead of the COP26 summit and so on is trying to get to net zero emissions, which is a target I know you you fully agree with. But you're also focusing not just on trying to reduce emissions, because from what you're saying, you know, in a way it's too late to rely just on that
1: but also on this idea of climate repair. What does that mean? Well, climate repair, let me just put it straightforwardly in one sentence. We have been destroying our climate system, both in terms of humanity and in terms of our biosystems. And now we need to repair. After destruction, we need to repair buildings that have been wrecked in a storm, need to be repaired. We're talking about the climate needing to be repaired. The first part of repair is, as you've said, reduce. We need to stop emitting greenhouse gases as quickly as possible. By the way, let me just interpose here. Methane emissions are now contributing at least as much to global warming as carbon dioxide emissions. Methane emissions are rising much more rapidly than ever before. And this is because of partly leakage from coal, oil, and gas recovery, but it's also from farming, for example, where more and more rice is being demanded by the growing global middle class and more and more meat. Now, if we don't manage to reduce methane emissions, we're really missing a trick. But let me move on to the question of uh, repair. We need to reduce greenhouse gases from the atmosphere, to remove them. And this does mean at scale. And when I say at scale, here in Cambridge, we are trying to work on technologies that will remove at least a billion tons of greenhouse gases a year. To put that in context, today we are emitting about 50 billion tons of all greenhouse gases per annum. A billion tons is the minimum requirement of any strategy we're looking at, but we want to see that we can remove perhaps 30 or 40 billion tons of greenhouse gases a year to get us back down to a safely manageable level. Now, that in itself is going to take too long. We won't get there till the end of the century. What do we do about the Arctic Circle region? So we also need to repair those parts of the climate system that have gone past their tipping point. And I've already described how the Arctic Circle region is impacting on the entire northern hemisphere. We can buy time. And I'm using a phrase that was used in a discussion I had with the president of Iceland. Buying time by refreezing the Arctic Circle region is essential. So I I think any strategy needs all three, reduce, remove, and repair. So this idea of refreezing the Arctic, how would one do something like that? We have looked at all the possibilities that have been put forward, and several of them are being pushed a little further. So one of them is to pump seawater on top of the ice that forms over the Arctic Sea during the Arctic winter period, so as to thicken the Arctic sea ice. Now, that is, that is a big exercise, and the energy from that would have to be obtained from wind turbines secured on the ice base. But the second idea that we are now working on quite extensively, the title is marine cloud brightening. What we want to do is see if we can cover the entire Arctic sea region during the three months of the polar summer with cloud cover, not just cloud cover, but white, bright clouds that would reflect the sunlight away from the ice form during the winter over the Arctic Sea and hoping to retain it for the whole of the summer period. So how
0: would you uh, cover the Arctic Circle with cloud?
1: Well, the interesting thing is that we're using a process which is to pump a fine spray of seawater into the atmosphere. As the seawater goes up, each drop of seawater carries a small crystal of sodium chloride, a small crystal of salt. And as it goes up, it loses the water, and it's just a crystal of salt in the atmosphere. That gets blown up into the atmosphere. We generate this when there's a, a cloud going past. When that salt drops on top of the cloud, the cloud goes white, Why? Quite simply because large droplets in a cloud, which is about to rain or snow, make the cloud look black and that absorbs sunlight and it it doesn't reflect it away. So it doesn't help us. But if we make a black cloud white, then bingo, we've got a a reflecting cloud. Now, the idea is that we would have these remote vessels, uh, by which I mean they're, they're managed remotely, placed around the whole Arctic Circle region, maybe a 1,000 of them, and we would only activate those when there's cloud cover going by and heading towards the Arctic Sea. If that sounds like a massive operation, the total cost is measured in billions of pounds per year, which, frankly, compared with the loss and damage incurred by rising sea levels, is peanuts.
0: So, how close are we to be able to actually do that and people and deploy the resources and get it done?
1: I think, in order to get all of the science done, we're about five years away. We're working on it as quickly as we can raise the money to do it. And at the same time, we have started a program of social work with people in the Arctic Circle region, including the Sami people, uh, the Inuit people, so that we are communicating directly with the indigenous people in the region. What we don't want is any misunderstandings about what we're trying to achieve. And so clearly we have to do this in advance of doing any of the work. So almost as important as the science and engineering is getting the social science and the political acceptability right.
0: But you do think that it's possible that Some of this damage can be reversed, and that we could go back to to an Arctic Circle that looked as it did before?
1: I don't only think it's possible. I think, frankly, this is something we have to do. And if marine cloud brightening doesn't work, we have to do other things, which is why we are encouraging the other processes to be developed. And there's no reason at all why we wouldn't do both the marine cloud brightening and the thickening of the ice. I would imagine that climate repair, the kind of thing you're
0: working on, potentially is quite politically appealing as well to politicians because it doesn't appear to require the economic sacrifices that net zero is sometimes people fear will involve.
1: Well, I have to say, uh, if, if we look at the process of defossilizing the global economy, we're talking about the biggest industry in the world, energy production. And as we've replaced that industry with invented new processes that are all renewable, not using any fossil fuel, for example, how do we fly, each one of these solutions is a wealth-creating opportunity. So I must say that I do believe the greatest wealth-creating opportunity over the coming 50 years comes from moving away from fossil fuels. If we could just leave coal, oil and gas in the ground and get on with the business of using solar energy, wind energy, geothermal energy, etc., but also being inventive about all of the mechanisms we have, for example, electric vehicles on the road. And each of these is a real wealth-creating opportunity, employing a vast number of people. And then you talk about we
0: trying, for example, to restore cloud cover. But I guess in political terms, who we is, is really crucial. And you have experience of international politics as former chief scientific advisor to the British government. These interventions have to be global in scale. But who does them? I mean, would it be a question of a few powerful governments unilaterally doing it? Or if they have to secure international agreement, isn't that going to be terribly time consuming?
1: Well, you're quite right, Gideon. And this brings me to the uh, Climate Crisis Security Council that I'm proposing be set up. The idea of the Security Council is that it will represent all nations. It has to be set up by the United Nations involving 195 nations, uh, but it needs to be able to act in an agile way. And you've just pointed out. 195 nations getting an agreement on on everything we're talking about would be really a tedious process and we don't have time. So I think we need this Security Council emergency uh, procedure to be set up to manage what is the biggest crisis humanity's ever had to face up to. So I think, you know, there's a very good argument for setting it up. That is, Security Council would also have to see that it can work with banks and with financial communities to see that we, we raise the funding that is required to manage all of these issues in a short enough period of time. There's a there's a fair appetite for this. And the reason I say that is because I have been talking to uh, bank people in the City of London, uh, the the reinsurance sector in the City of London, both very clearly understanding that their own investments are seriously at risk if we don't manage this crisis. So I I do think there's a a real appetite for action. Uh, The COVID-19 outbreak, of course, has been more than a distraction, but it has also highlighted what science can deliver through the development of new processes for the development of vaccines, emerging in a very rapid period of time. So I I think, hopefully, we can learn from COVID-19 and proceed to treat this crisis as it is. It is a far bigger crisis for humanity than COVID-19 has or will be. Do you think
0: that the scientific resources that were mobilized to pursue what was a very difficult but relatively simple task of finding a vaccine for COVID-19. Have we seen anything yet similar in terms of mobilization of the global scientific community to deal with climate?
1: In one sense, we saw this mobilization appearing very, very quickly when we focused on delivering renewable energy. And today, renewable energy is available around the world to put in electricity supplies cheaper for almost every country in the world than it would be from new fossil fuel power stations. Uh, But the second point is, and here I'm going to refer to some actions I took while I was in government, the setting up of Mission Innovation, which was a a voluntary group of countries that we invited to join a program to spend $30 billion a year to develop all the technologies we need in the post-fossil fuel world. Now, that group is now committed to spending 40 to 45 billion dollars a year by 2025. In other words, it's already up and running. We had 22 heads of governments voluntarily committing to it, including the British government, and committed to spending that 30 billion dollars a year by 2020. So, I think that that's one way forward is to look at willing nations prepared to act and act quickly. And in an agile fashion, you may know that the COP process, which I admire enormously, is extremely laborious. A two-week meeting every six months involving 195 nations, each represented on average by 20 official negotiators. Wow. How do you get an agreement amongst 3,500 to 4,000 negotiators? It's a very, very tedious process. As you've just been saying we need a rapid way forward to manage this crisis.
0: Okay, well, Sir David King, thank you very much for joining us and for everything you're trying to do to combat this horrible crisis. Thank you. That was Sir David King in Cambridge, ending this edition of the Rachman Review. I'll be away for the next couple of weeks, but my FT colleagues will keep the show on the road. So please join us again.